Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 15. But before we go there, uh, as we've started doing as of late, the proverb of the day, I want you to take your Bibles and go backwards and turn into Proverbs 18. There's two verses that I want to focus on. Proverbs 18.13 and Proverbs 18.17. Starting with verse 13, it says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Now, that sounds almost like a, a riddle. A lot of the Proverbs, it seemed, were enigmatic until you study them in their t- uh, entirety. If you look at some of the more paraphrased versions of the scripture, it comes out a little clearer. And basically what it's saying is that if you answer a matter, if you've determined, if you've cast a judgment on a particular incident, before you hear it completely, you're a fool and it's shameful. And what that means is, you know, if you get one side of the story, if somebody tells you a tale, and it's a good tale and it seems very convincing, and they may even be your friends, but you don't know the other side of the story and you say, I know what this is about, that's sad. That's sad, because first of all, that would never hold up in a court of law. And the second thing is verse 17, it says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Reminds me of the jurisprudence system. Even as a rookie police officer, I would go on a call and there would be a neighbor dispute, and I would hear the story of the complainant, the first neighbor, and they would tell such a story about their neighbor. And, and, and I'm thinking, wow, they must be a real jerk in my mind. Where do I go see this person? And then I'll go to the neighbor's house and find out that they're filling in the other blanks. And the truth lies somewhere in the, in the middle. And you find very quickly, you, you have to take in what people say, but remember, there's more to the story. And it says that the first one seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Jurisprudence system. If you've ever watched court TV, and I've seen court proceedings for 18 years. But the person goes up and tells their testimony in the, in the witness stand. And the judge is sitting there in the jury and prosecutor and defense attorney, and if they tell their story and they give their testimony, the law says that they have to sit there for the opposing party, whether it be a person or an attorney, to cross-examine them. Now, that gets a little uncomfortable. Often people who are guilty will certainly want to plead the fifth. They don't want to sit in that chair because the cross-examination is going to put holes into their testimony. But I think as Christians, by and large, I hate to say it, but we violate or a lot of these principles. And you're going to see this in Paul, in, in the story of the Apostle Paul. I like to try to do the proverb of the, of the day to match the scripture that we're in in Acts, and we're going to see how this plays out. Even in marital counseling, when Heather and I have done marital counseling, I'm not a big fan of counseling spouses separately, if, unless at some point you can bring them together. Now, of course, there's extreme circumstances, abuse and things like that, but in a regular circumstance, if you bring the two people together, the stories are less likely to go way out here because there's somebody sitting next to them, all right? So it's a very good proverb to understand. And even if I'm in the middle of something, I'll often say what I believe, and I'll say, but, you know, I'm also coloring it from my point of view. And hopefully we have the foresight to say that about ourselves. We're sinful, we're not perfect, and even our story, the facts that we see, we may be off a little bit. So understand as Christians, guys, let's get all the information first before we go casting judgment. And Jesus said, you shouldn't judge people anyway. Okay. So the last time we saw, we started chapter 21, which ended with the Apostle Paul touching down in Jerusalem. 
And today we're going to see the events unfold in Jerusalem that lead to the Apostle Paul's arrest. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 15. Acts 21, 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them one Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. Okay, these are Jewish people who believed in Jesus as their Messiah. And they are all zealous for the law. It should raise a flag. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Now, there's a little few nuances in the Greek sentence structure. An alternate form of that last verse is, he says, what then is to be done? Question mark. They will certainly hear. Rumors about Paul, the apostle Paul, his character was lambasted by the rumor mill. And who possibly believed it? In verse 20 and 21, brothers in the Lord. It's a problem. Before Paul even got to Jerusalem, he had a bad reputation. Going back to Proverbs 18. Some, no doubt, were concerned about Paul and maybe in their minds believed the tales from these other detractors that he did these things. The accusation was that Paul taught to forsake Mosaic law and specifically the eradication of circumcision. In verse 21, the word forsake in the Greek is apostasian. You may recognize that word. In the English, we get the word apostasy from. In other words, he was accused of a wholesale defection from Jewish culture and law. Now, this would certainly evoke strong emotions and passions. If you ever see somebody who's maybe debating and they're trying to win the debate, maybe they don't, they don't have substance, but they work on emotion. They work the crowd into an emotional frenzy because that's a good way to win an argument because you get people's emotions involved. They're not really concerned about the facts, but they get caught up in their feelings. And this certainly would have done that. Now, to make matters worse, see, I like to paint a big picture and put everything into play. Historical background. In that time... The Roman historian Josephus tells us that in A.D. 56 through 57, there was a high Jewish nationalism. There was high political unrest. There was civil insurrection and harsh quelling of that insurrection by the Roman government under Felix, the procurator or the governor. This certainly fostered an antipathy at the very least for the Gentiles. And Paul, as a Pharisee and a rabbi, is now ministering to the Gentiles. Can you say the word traitor? <laughs> no doubt, if they had a word for traitor, that came to mind. So you can see how things are going to heat up as we read for the Apostle Paul. It's a recipe for trouble. But the allocations were not true. In fact, three facts that I want to share with you. Number one, Paul had Timothy circumcised, if you remember. We, we went through that. And poor Timothy, he got circumcised as an adult. Number two, 
Paul previously took an Old Testament oath. This was an Old Testament rite ritual, which he didn't have to, of a Nazarite vow because he desired to do it. And three, Paul observed the feasts. He wanted to get back for the Passover. He wanted to get to Jerusalem for the Pentecost. So even though he was free in Christ, he still wanted to go back and follow some of these Old Testament rites, cultural, ritual type of things. You see, when we talk about grace, which is God's unmerited favor on us, it gives believers the right to be Judaized. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the believer's right not to be Judaized. But also it gives believers the right to still retain their Jewish heritage. Every year somebody asks me to go to a Passover Seder. And there's a lot of really neat symbolism because you can see the Messiah written all over the Passover. So pretty much every year I'm going to somebody's Passover Seder. Now, I have the right not to go. But I also have the right, grace says that I can go. To the Jewish person, they don't have to celebrate it because Jesus fulfilled the Passover. So the Passover is really fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb. And the Holy Spirit fulfilled, I believe it's Shavuot, the uh, Pentecost, in that the giving of the Holy Spirit, instead of an actual harvest, the Holy Spirit was given to believers. So the Jewish person can celebrate it, but they don't have to. But either way, they have the grace to do either, you see. But what did Paul say that was twisted? He said... In fact, that observances and rituals were not necessary for salvation. He didn't say you didn't didn't have to do them and you didn't have to circumcise your kids. Because Jesus' death freed us from the bondage of the law. Now, I want to explain a little bit of, of a progression here, starting with legalism. God gave the law. He gave Mosaic law. You see the Ten Commandments, which is a microcosm of the of the law. Okay. You see uh, civil, uh, ceremonial observances, uh, criminal observances, this, the whole law. They say it was over 600 uh, do's and don'ts in the law. Now, what happened was people would see the law. You would look at the law. Don't steal, don't covet, don't lie, don't murder. And the law was like a mirror. You could see your true self in the law. You would look at the law and realize, gee, I'm not perfect. I messed at least a few of these up, Okay. What the law would do is a few things. It would, number one, show us our sin so that we would realize that we have rebelled against God. It would show us our need for a Savior, okay, so it helped us to bring us towards a Savior. The law did a lot of things. Um, And it would hopefully get us closer to God to see, I'm a frail human being, I really need my Lord. Now, what happened over time was the Jews started to almost worship the law, and they became legalists. So every little minutiae of the law had to be covered. If it was the Sabbath and God said, rest on the Sabbath. Okay, what does rest mean? Does it mean that when I wake up in the morning, I can't brush my teeth because that's work and it says not to work on a Sabbath? And they would pick apart what God said. Instead of taking the spirit of the law, they went to the minutiae of the law. And they started worshiping little pieces of the law instead of worshiping God anymore. And it was misdirected worship. Then what happened was the law was supposed to bring us, the Bible says it was a tutor to faith. Okay, grace comes in. The new wineskins, right? Uh, The old wineskins and the old wine, the old religious system. And the new wineskins that Jesus talked about was uh, grace was the new wineskins that were able to hold the new wine, which was a picture of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus died for our sins. We're not held to the minutiae of the law, but uh, we have freedom now in Christ. We have grace. Our sins are forgiven. 
A few scripture references before I kind of go a little bit more into detail here. Uh, before we do that, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God spoke about through the prophet Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant. Okay, this was during the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He said there's going to be a new covenant where a neighbor won't say to the other neighbor, follow the law, don't do this, don't do that. There'll be a new covenant where your neighbor won't have to say that to you or you want to say it to yourself, but the law will be written on your hearts. You know, the love for God will be in your heart because of your sins being forgiven. You'll want to please God instead of being uh, put, you know, made to follow these particular things. Galatians 2.4. And you see all throughout Galatians, Colossians, uh, Paul sp- speaks about the freedom in Christ uh, versus the legalism and the bondage of the law. 2.4. 3 and 4. He says, Not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek... Okay, was compelled to be circumcised. But this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Okay, you have the age of grace, grace, and the Judaizers kept coming in saying, in order for someone to be saved, they have to follow all the law, and then they can be saved. But that's not what the Bible says. Galatians 5.1. Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty or the freedom by which Christ made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Again, not that you can't be circumcised, but if you're, con- you're con- uh, looking or it's contingency upon circumcision for you to be saved and for you to have uh, that freedom, that's not true. You don't have to do that. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Because it's either law or grace. The law acquiesced to grace. Okay, So you don't go back to the beggarly elements of the law. Colossians 2, starting with verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Quote, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And that's what religion is. Religion especially today, it keeps you in a box. When you go and you want to be religious and you go to a faith and you basically say, okay, what are your bylaws? What are your rules that you have to follow? And they basically say, here's your list of do's. Here's your list of don'ts. Now fit into that box. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Do that. But see, a relationship, which was what Jesus provided us when he died for our sins, he opened the door now for us to have a relationship with God. Do you, when you have relationships with your spouses or your kids, is that all it's about? Do this, don't do that. It's conversation, it's love, it's exchange of ideas. That's what a relationship is. Verse 20, going back to Acts um, 21, going to verse 20. It says that he talks about uh, the myriads of Jews, Jewish believers who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Now, Galatians 3 tells us that we're perfected, okay? We're sanctified, we're set apart, we're God's children. He's adopted us, right? We call him Abba Father. We're perfected by God's Holy Spirit, okay, that we're sealed with. 
We're not perfected by anything we can do in the flesh, and we're not perfected by the law. Some people think that if they become religious and they follow these sets of rules, that's going to get them closer to God. But we're perfected by the Spirit of God, not what we can do and not what we can't do. Even Abraham, if you look at the Scripture, Abraham was imputed righteousness, and he wasn't following the law yet. Mosaic law wasn't there yet. So Abraham, the Bible says, it was imputed righteousness to him because he believed in faith. Faith was more important with God. Habakkuk 2.4, even in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. So God was more concerned with those who really believed him and believed what he could do versus those that really had no relationship with him but followed a set of rules. I know I'm really beating this down, but I really want you to understand that. What about Christian legalism? And you've heard that in the church. Sometimes Christians can be legalistic. What does that mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 4 tells us not to go beyond what's written in the law. Let me give you an example. Christian legalism. We're going back to the law. We're saying to each other, we're nitpicking each other and the little details of their life because we're going back to following the minutiae of the law. In other words, if I go out to dinner with my wife and I see a family, the Joneses from the church, I don't think there's anybody here named the Joneses, but... And there's a glass of wine on the table. I'm not going to say, oh, you're excommunicated. That's terrible. How could you do that? The Bible doesn't say you can't have a glass of wine. It does say don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference, and I'm going to get to that. Now, there's a difference between if, the, if I see the Joneses out to dinner and they're just hammered. They're just drunk, and they're fighting with each other. And they get in the car and they drive home. Well, not only have you violated man's law, but you violated God's law, too. There's things in there all over that say, you know, domestic, the whole deal. But we might have to have a discussion. But between, <laughs> between one and the other, look how great the difference is. Now, a caveat to that is, let me explain this, as a pastor, I choose not to drink. And the Calvary system teaches that, if you're a pastor, that you really shouldn't drink. Because 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we're free in Christ. I could drink and not sin. However, there may be people in the fellowship that are struggling with alcoholism. And if they see me out to dinner and I have alcohol, that could be a stumbling block to them. And the Bible says to love people more, to not do that, and forsake your Christian liberty to love that, that brother or sister. So that's just me, but I don't impose that on other people. That's just me. Uh, the other thing is maybe going to see a movie. Okay? So there's some denominations that teach you, you should never go to see a movie. Uh, I like history. I will go to see. I don't see movies a lot. I'm not a big movie goer. But uh, maybe Saving Private Ryan or something historical about World War II, I'll go to see that. Again, me personally, I won't eat, go see something that has uh, you know, sex scenes or something like that. Again, that's me. I don't want to do that. Uh, so if you go see a movie, what, does the Bible say you can't see a movie? However, take that versus a Christian brother over here who's going to see pornography or a triple X movie. There's no redeeming qualities to go in to see that, okay? There's a problem there. And I think what I could do is I could take it down to a two-tiered or two points, a litmus test of two points to follow. Number one, are you being corrupted by the world? Okay, is my action corrupting me? Is the world, by doing this thing, am I being so influenced by the world that I'm becoming corrupted? Okay, the second point is, are you gratifying your flesh? Am I engaging in this activity to just gratify my flesh and my carnal nature? Because then if that's the case, the spirit's kind of over here. You're quenching the spirit, the Bible says. Or, or, or am I not? 
We're either filled with the Spirit or we're filled with our carnal nature and we're filled with the flesh. And there's a, the Bible says that they war against each other. We can choose to allow ourselves to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in Christ and to do the things that please God, or we can choose the things that uh, are displeasing to Him and corrupting and gratifying our flesh. And I think it comes down to those two things. Nitpicking others, minutiae, but not looking in the mirror. That's Christian legalism. Having a critical spirit and not minding our own business. You know, Jesus enjoyed his company more with those who were sinners but were willing to change, if you follow the Gospels, versus pious, religious, stuffy, nitpicky, legalistic people. The religious system. He had his biggest problem with those of society. Verse 23. Therefore, okay, this is the church speaking to Paul. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So basically what you have here may be a little confusing if you're not familiar with the scripture. Here's the plan. Paul's gonna, the church is going to ask Paul to pretty much go out of his way to resurrect his character and convince the naysayers that he really wasn't doing these things. He really likes the law. You know, He wasn't trying to eradicate it. And they wanted him to shave his head. It was a Nazarite vow. We've covered it before, all the way in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 6, it was an Old Testament uh, ritual. Now, remember, Paul, the Apostle Paul, did this vow voluntarily some chapters back. But now they're asking him to do it and do it in front of everyone so they could see, oh, he's really not the, the, the person that they thought he was. Now, let's look at the church response versus Paul's response. The first one, Paul, okay, from the Apostle Paul. Paul's perspective, it's a tongue twister, he was obedient to the church and he was looking to avoid problems. Paul was being flexible. He was compromising, but I don't think he was compromising in a bad way. And I think compromise is good and flexibility is good as long as you don't compromise your principle. principles. I had the opportunity a few weeks back to have dinner at a very orthodox, strict uh, rabbi's house. Okay? And you're like, boy, that must have been an interesting conversation. One of the things, and they observed, remember we talked about the Pharisees, a lot of the repetitive uh, behavior and a lot of the, the detail to the minutiae? Well, it was very interesting because I got to see it firsthand, and I won't go into great detail, but one of the things he asked me to do before dinner was to wash my hands three times. Remember we talked about that? So I actually was living it in this, in this man's home. You know what? I don't think God cares if my hands were washed one time or three times, but to make the guy happy, I washed my hands three times, you know? To me, it was an open door to share the Messiah with him, to go through the Old Testament and enjoy myself and his, and his company and share the Messiah with him. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to wash my hands three times. I don't have to do that. I did it. I was flexible. Um, as long as he didn't ask me to do anything that denied my Lord and Savior, sure, no problem. We'll, we'll do it. So flexibility. Now, in Paul's case, you see his greatness that comes out. Paul acquiesced to the political sensitivity of the church, but he didn't have to. He could have said, I'm the great apostle Paul. 
Look at these converts here. They're nothing compared to what I did in Europe. You know, look at my resume. I don't have to do this. But he didn't. He humbled himself. And um, that's a great quality of a leader, to be humble. Paul was a very humble person. He did it anyway. The second thing, now let's look at it from the church's perspective. I'm going to give my opinion here in a few instances and understand the difference between Pastor Joe's opinion, which you can just kind of discard at the door when you leave, versus sacred scripture. Okay? Uh, The reason why I'm going to give my opinion is because the, the Bible doesn't really say whether this was good or bad. Now, understand it's my opinion. There's too many pulpits in America where there's too many opinions being given throughout the sermon and not enough Bible. Too much, political, 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 too much politics? <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs> too much politics and too much opinionation from the pulpit. So I'm going to let you know and digress when I have an opinion, but understand that's not sacred scripture. In my opinion, the church leaders were wrong in making Paul do this. The church should have quelled this divisive situation before it spread like leaven. 1 Corinthians 5 The Apostle Paul says when it comes to church discipline, if there's a leavenous situation, if there's a situation that starts to spread, okay, like like yeast in a bread, you need to cut it off because the whole church will be affected by it. And sometimes the church has to do things like that, to break up factions or divisions or things like that that could ruin a church. And I've seen and heard about a lot of church splits over the years. Legalism was a poison to the Jerusalem church. And instead of correcting it early on, it festered and it led to this, I believe, bad compromise. Compromise led to the double standard. In verse 25, there was a standard for the the Jewish believers. And I think it was unfair to the Jewish believers. They made them do more things. And he said, but to the Gentiles, they only have to follow these three things. So now what you have is a two-tiered system in the church. The Gentile believers versus the Jewish believers. A double standard is inherently unfair. You see, the Bible tells us that when when we become Christians, when we're one in Christ, we become one in a family. You look around, black people, white people, Jewish people, Gentile people, male, female, the Bible says slave nor free. In that day, the slaves and the uh, people who had slaves ate together. They were brothers and sisters, okay? Uh, Male, female, they wouldn't have to be separated anymore. Uh, Jews, Gentiles, they were all together. And that's the beauty of the transcendent gospel. It brings us all together under one umbrella. And what happened here was the, the, the wall of division was starting to be built up, back up, brick by brick. Uh, double standard can lead to hypocrisy and certainly compromise. And compromise at its worst will always lead to picking and choosing what you want out of the Bible. It's a slippery slope. And I'm not saying the Jerusalem church compromise scripturally. I'm not going there. Uh, But I'm saying at its worst case, this kind of double standard hypocrisy compromise can lead to taking what you want out of the Bible. How would you like it if I divided, (laughs) Art was talking about the people who usually sit on this side and the people who sit on that side. What if I said the people on this side are the really spiritual good people and you guys really are not so spiritual. So for the people on the left side, I'm going to ask you to do more things because you need to build up your spirituality. And over here, these are my favorites. They don't have to do anything. That's going to cause problems. It's going to cause factions and divisions. Uh, And that's what compromise does. Now, if I talk about salvation and say that there's different standards for salvation, that's a problem too. See, that's what religion does. If you go to one religion, they can tell you, you have to follow all these things and you'll find God. If you go to another religion, they'll say, eh, you don't have to do too too much. You can sit on the couch and watch TV and you're, you're okay. So you're telling me that when you get to heaven, God's going to bring people in on different standards? 
That's the beauty of Christianity. Accept what God has done through his son. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you'll be saved, and that's it. In the end, God allowed the temple and the religious system to be removed by the Romans in A.D. 70, and that's a nice way of putting it. But God was still present to worship. This is why this is notable. Uh, Let's see, maybe three or four decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, the Romans came in and just destroyed the whole temple system. Now, what's notable is in the temple there were courts or divisions. You had the the courts of the priests, and they would go out like in concentric circles. And then you would, that would be separated by the courts of the Jewish men, and then the court of the Jewish women, and the court of the Gentiles. Okay, And the Gentiles were like the outcasts. If they wanted to worship, they could not cross from the Gentile court into the other courts under penalty of death. Okay, And we're going to actually read that. There was an inscription on the wall that said, don't cross over here if you're a Gentile. So you had believers worshiping again under different standards. So I can come to God, but I'm not as good as the person next to me. It's a problem. So God removed that. He took care of it. And there's going to be times that he's going to take things out of our lives. Okay, believers. There may be something in your life that's, that's holding you back. There may be something in your life that's causing division. There may be something in your life that's an idol that you're holding on to. And God may remove it. And it may be painful. It was very painful for those uh, religious Jewish people to see their beloved temple raised to the ground. But God didn't go anywhere. God was still available to worship. He was still there to talk to and have a relationship with. Okay? And there may be things in our lives when God takes something out of our life, a relationship, a friendship, somebody we thought we were very close, and then all of a sudden either one of us grows in Christ and he separates that friendship. And you may say, why, Lord? That is so painful. But it's because he wants you for himself. And if, if you are a child of God and you love God and you want to grow, he'll allow things in your life to be removed. So all you can do is look up and say, wow, Lord, you're, you're truly the one, the primary one that I can focus on and trust in my life. Because people will come and go. And that can be a good thing. He can break up, that, break up those divisions. Verse 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Remember the inscription. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed or assumed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So apparently Paul's participation in his ritual didn't help the situation. Um, and even possibly his, his high-profile appearance might have even actually made it worse even though it was supposed to make it better. Not only did the compromise fail, but it was the cause of a disastrous situation. A few things here. There was a charge by other rabble-rousers that Paul is going around to all men and everywhere. You talk about generalities. One thing when you do marital counseling is you try to teach your spouse not to say you always if it's something bad and you never if it's something good. 
Personally, I don't always leave my clothes on the floor in the bathroom. It happens sometimes. Okay? So, anyway, moving on from that. You get the picture. <laughs> sometimes. Uh, anyway, the charge was a lie. And we know that Satan is the father of lies. He loves to twist things. He likes to take some truth and twist it to make it look like it's actually happened. Just to put a little falsity in with a lot of truth, and the whole thing becomes false. It's, it's like logic. They supposed. They jumped to conclusions. They assumed. You know, here's an example from one leading to another. And I, I did this once. I was out in the parking lot, and a, a, a woman in the fellowship, I don't even remember who it was, she had a flat tire, so I had to fix a flat in the trunk. I took it out, shh, put it in the tire, and she was on her way. But just watch the progression here. You take some truth and then mix it with a lie. I saw Pastor Joe by himself in the parking lot with a woman fixing her flat, and she was attractive. Therefore, they must be having an affair. Now, nobody said that, but you don't think that happens in church? Come on. Sometimes churches can be the biggest rumor mills. You take mostly what's true and then add a little tail onto that to make the whole premise false, right? So they... they came to conclusions, and this is where Proverbs 18 comes into play. Because Paul said some things. He did speak about the beggarly elements of the law. He did speak about salvation, and salvation is not through the law. He didn't tell people the things that they're accusing him of. So it, it, it was twisted there. And verse 31, they were about to kill him. Now, I don't know what the mixture was, and I don't want to read into the text, but certainly there were Jews who believed and Jews who didn't believe who were in this area, right? They both wanted to worship God. But it says that they were about to kill him in verse 31. Okay, the crowd was riled up. Nobody really knew what was going on, but they were worked up into an emotionally frenzy, and they wanted to kill him. Now, remember this. These are religious people. These are people who have come to the temple to worship God but it says they were about to kill him. Now, I agree with the atheist when he says that religion is one of the causes of the worst atrocities that mankind has ever seen and genocide. I believe that. However, the Bible doesn't call us to be religious. If you look at your history, if you look at Christianity, people will say, well, well I don't want to believe in Christianity because it's the result of the Holocaust or it's the result of the Crusades or the result of uh, the Inquisitions or what have you. However, what they are not seeing is that that was by the hands of organized religion. It wasn't by the hands of those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God doesn't call us to be religious people. God calls us to be saved by the blood of Christ and have a relationship with him. That's what God calls us to do. And if, and if we truly have a relationship with Christ, we'll follow his principles. Who could have a relationship with Christ and get involved with something uh, to the tune of mass genocide? I don't understand. That's from the day to the night. It, it's just not possible to do. Again, it's, it's the repetitive living in a box, don't do this, don't do that, um, go with what everybody else is going versus relationship. In verse 32, it said to, at least uh, more than one centurion was dispatched to the area. Now, a centurion was a commander of 100 men, of up to 100 men. So you have at least 200 Roman soldiers coming down to break up this ruckus. And that just goes to show you how big this riot had gotten out of hand. Verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. 
And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Paul had a good character. We know. We read about the Apostle Paul. Um, And even in Romans 7, he doesn't look at himself like anything great. He looks at himself as an average person who's a sinner. Romans 7 is a great uh, passage of scripture to read to show that the characters in the Bible weren't perfect people. But he had a good character, but now he finds himself again beat up. I'm sure he took a lot of beatings. He was shackled again and taken away, probably to the Antonia Fortress. If you know anything about the temple area, there was the temple, and then there was a, a, a fortress called the Antonia Fortress, which was in the northwest corner of the temple area built by Herod the Great, which housed a 1,000 Roman soldiers, or up to, it was like a barracks, local state police barracks, uh, because of the problems, the constant problems that there were in Jerusalem. So that's where he was uh, whisked, most likely whisked away to. And I guess my point is, don't be surprised when you're doing the right thing and you're being treated bad. Now, the Bible says that if we're persecuted because we've done something wrong, i.e. commit a crime or uh, we do something that's illegal or immoral, don't be surprised if you get persecuted, that's on you. But the Bible says, blessed is he who's persecuted for Jesus' sake. Now, if you look at a book that I read called Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see scores of stories of those people who did the right thing, loved God, worshipped God, tried to teach the Bible, tried to uh, make a difference in their community. And the powers that be were hostile towards Christianity, and they were murdered. Some were tortured. And I believe that God in those times gave them a, a special filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to go to their deaths and still proclaim Jesus Christ and not deny him. So I guess my point is, if we're doing the right thing, sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, what good is it doing the right thing? You don't get anything for it anyway. Look what the world's doing. But the truth is, do the right thing. You know, be a good Christian. Follow the principles of Christ, and you will be persecuted. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, and you're my followers, they're going to persecute you. If they follow my message, they're going to follow your message, because you say the things that I say. But the world is always going to be at odds with you. And don't try to make friends with the world necessarily, but be salt and light to the world. Verse 37. And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago raised an insurrection and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, what I love about the book of Acts is it's, it's a historical work. And Dr. Luke puts in a lot of facts. Okay? And one of the facts here, which really is not relevant to the story, is there was uh, an Egyptian uh, terrorist back then, uh, well over 2,000 years ago, who led an insurrection in Jerusalem and talked about uh, you know, taking over the Romans. And there was many men who led these insurrections And it was pretty bloody. It was put down hard by Felix, the governor. A lot of Jews were killed because of following this guy. And then uh, the others were taken into slavery. And the leader escaped. 
So they just thought, the Romans, now again, look at them. They see what's going on. They're thinking, wow, there's another riot. Maybe this is the Egyptian terrorist. So they go after him, and that's why they bound him, one on right hand, one on the left, not knowing what happened yet, uh, making an assumption about him. Okay, so that's what he's talking about there. But you see a great lesson here. I think the great lesson here is on flexibility and compromise. I just want to take you to a, a quick understanding of Matthew chapter 11. It says that Jesus says that, and he speaks about himself and John the Baptist. And he said, John the Baptist, of those born of women, John the Baptist was the greatest. So John the Baptist actually was the greatest prophet. He said, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. Well, John the Baptist came, and he was somewhat of a wild man, lived in the wilderness, and he came out to society, you know, with his leather belt and eating locusts, and he said, you know, repent. You know, the Messiah is coming. Straighten your lives out. And he, he gave it to the soldiers. He gave it to the religious leaders. Uh, and he, was, he had a very harsh, strong message for the people. The other part of the scripture says, and Jesus came eating and drinking. And they said, he is a, a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus came and he had a gentle style. Jesus couldn't be corrupted by the world. He would fellowship with anyone if they wanted to turn their life around. Uh, he had friends who were uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, whoever they were. And he had a more gentle style, the, the opposite of John's style. And it says that they didn't like John's style and they didn't like Jesus' style. And both of them were killed. Two different approaches to reach different masses and they were both killed. A few lessons on this. Number one, I think the Jerusalem church compromised too much with legalism and it turned out to be futile. Legalism was placated at the price of grace. Once we really understand grace, there's no place for legalism. And you may say, well, are you trying to say that because we're under the age of grace, we don't have to follow the Ten Commandments? What I'm saying is if you really understand grace, you will follow the Ten Commandments. Not because God is making you, but because we love God. I love God. I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to steal from people. I don't want to murder. And if I've done something wrong, I, I confess my sins. So if you really truly understand grace, there is no need for legalism because you want to please the Lord. Jeremiah 31 says it will be written on their hearts and in their minds. Okay? The second thing is even when we're flexible, we have to stop where our principles are trampled. We should be, Chuck Smith said that blessed are the flexibles for they shall not be broken. We should be as flexible as possible. But that flexibility ends where our principles are trampled or compromised. The third thing is sometimes no matter how much we compromise, troublemakers will still turn on you in the end. <laughs> Some people just can't be pleased. They want to complain, and no matter what you do, they'll have a critical spirit. And lastly, leaders are always going to be criticized, so you can't spend all your time trying to appease them. Just do the Lord's work. Paul didn't spend most of his time finding the people who thought something wrong about him and sitting with them and saying, well, let me explain it to you. He didn't do that. He just did the Lord's work. Because you can be obfuscated and tied up and, and held back by trying to always resurrect your character. So I would say that if Jesus and John the Baptist were maligned, don't think for a minute you're going to find a better approach to pleasing everyone. And my prayer is this, that we would have the balance to understand how to be flexible, how to be loving, and how to be gracious, but also know when to say, that's enough, and it ends here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word.